In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. The record breaking partial U.S. government shutdown looks like it has now come to an end. Donald Trump today announcing that he is going to be reopening the government for three weeks. Uh, and during which time we will be able to have negotiations regarding funding for the border wall, the barrier, the smart wall, whatever it's being called now. And of course, Donald Trump seems to be uh, downwardly moving his uh, expectations of what that wall would constitute, you know, how much terrain it would cover. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't believe that whatever compromise we get three weeks from now is going to include any type of funding for the wall. And I think that the president's talking about potentially shutting the government down again in three weeks if the wall money is not there. I think that's an empty threat. I think that is a bluff that would be easily called by the Democrats. In fact, if you look at the Democratic press conference that followed the Trump announcement. Chuck Schumer basically said, I hope the president learned his lesson, which I'm surprised he even said that, but it's an admission that the Democrats were trying to teach Trump a lesson. And that's in fact, probably what they did because now that Trump has caved and allowed the government to reopen, and I don't know, maybe it was uh, LaGuardia airport today uh, saying that they had to suspend flights because they didn't have the air traffic controllers Whatever it was, Trump blinked first, and I think that's it. I think he doesn't have a negotiating position in the future because now all the government workers are going to get paid. They're going to get checks, so the potential economic hardship has been diffused. And again, this is also shows you uh, the degree to which our economy is teetering on the edge of the brink because you have so many government workers who are living paycheck to paycheck. If they don't get that paycheck, they can't pay their rent. They can't put food on the table. This is a very unhealthy economy where people have no savings and are so completely dependent on a paycheck that may not come in because during this next economic downturn, a lot of people are going to lose their paychecks because they're going to lose their jobs. And this is just a small taste 
of what's to come. But obviously, Trump didn't like the taste, and and now he had to cave in. And so once he's done this, he's not going to be able to shut down the government again, because even if he does, well, people are going to remember, well, you shut it down once, and, and then you caved in, and you caused a temporary moratorium. The money got paid to the workers, and here we are again. So I think once you've given in, I mean, I think you're done as far as future negotiating is concerned. You you had a hard line, but now you, you've shown your, your hand. I think if Trump really wanted to hold out for the wall, he should have held out for the wall and not given in. I mean, initially he said, under no circumstances will I agree to reopen the government while we continue to negotiate on the wall. And that's exactly what he did. We're exactly where we would have been had the president taken this position from day one. But now he's gotten to this position after a record-breaking shutdown. He has gained absolutely nothing, and we're back where we started, except he does have a much weakened position if he wants to bluff that he's going to do the whole thing all over again, which he is not. So I think the shutdown is over. Uh, the government, unfortunately, is fully back in business. I mean, the bad news, it, it was never really out of business. This whole thing was a farce, as all these government shutdowns always are. The government is going to stay open. It's going to keep doing damage to the economy. It's going to keep spending more and borrowing more. And it may be spending a little bit more on border security. But at this point, I just don't see the Democrats giving Trump the wall, whether it would have done uh, a significant amount of good or not, remains to be seen and maybe is open for debate. But I think politically, the wall is now a symbol. And I think the Democrats at this point do not want to give up that symbol by allowing that wall to be built. And, and so I think that the wall may be an election issue in 2020. But of course, I think the economy is going to be a much bigger issue in 2020 than the wall. Meanwhile, the stock market had a rally today. The Dow Jones was up about 184 points, so it managed to finish the week positive. It was down uh, on the week going into today, but it got a lot of help from the Federal Reserve. There was an article early this morning by the Wall Street Journal basically confirming something that I have been saying for years, and that is the Federal Reserve is now thinking about ending its quantitative tightening program, right? They're not going to shrink the balance sheet nearly as much as they had indicated in the past or what they had been thinking, that they're almost done. You know, not too long ago, it was on autopilot. They were just going to leave it alone and it was going to keep on going. And then, you know, the market started to cave and then they changed that to, well, we're data dependent. And now the market starts to go down a little bit more. And all of a sudden we're almost done. Right. So the Federal Reserve is having to prematurely abort quantitative tightening which is exactly what I said they were going to do before they, they shrunk the balance sheet by the first dollar. The day the Federal Reserve announced its intention to shrink its balance sheet, I was out there saying it's never going to happen. I said they may try. They may even get away with a small reduction cosmetically to get it going. But I said before they made any significant progress and in reducing that balance sheet, they would have to stop. Right? And that is exactly what they did. So now this is two for two as far as what I predicted would happen with Fed policy. Because I also said from before they had the first rate hike, I said that if the Federal Reserve starts raising rates in an attempt to normalize interest rates, if they start that journey, they will never complete it. That they will have to stop raising interest rates at some point, And that's what they've done. So they've stopped raising interest rates, and they're going to stop quantitative tightening. Exactly what I said they were going to do. Now, of course, the markets are very happy, right? Everybody is excited now. Uh, the Fed is our friend again. The market can go up. This is all good news as far as you know, Wall Street is concerned and the conventional media. But they don't understand that these decisions were inevitable, 
because the Federal Reserve didn't solve any of the problems that led to the 2008 financial crisis. They made all the problems bigger. See, the reason that I knew that this was going to happen and none of these other experts had a clue. In fact, even until a month or two ago, nobody believed the Fed was anywhere near the end of its rate hiking cycle. Nobody believed the Fed was anywhere near shrinking its balance sheet. Now, why didn't they believe it? Because the Fed wasn't saying that. They were just listening to what the Fed was saying. I didn't care what they were saying. I knew what they were going to do. And now they've done exactly what I said they were going to do. Yes, maybe it took a few years longer than they thought for them to do it because certain things happened that you know, gave them the ability uh, to do that, like the election of Donald Trump and the surprise euphoria and, and tax cuts that that created. But be that as it may, we are now exactly where I said we were going to be, where the Fed has to abort uh, this tightening. Because I knew from the beginning that if they tried to normalize rates, uh, they would prick their own bubble. If they tried to uh, shrink their balance sheet, right? They would be trying to pull the table out from under the cloth. And I knew that that was an impossible trick. Well, now the Fed has figured out that it's an impossible trick, but it's not just stopping, you know, midway or they need to shove the rest of that table back under that cloth because otherwise, you know, it's still going to collapse. But the, the truth is it doesn't matter because this bubble is pricked. The air is coming out no matter what the Fed does now. But again, part of my forecast from the beginning was not just that they would halt prematurely the rate hikes and that they would call off their quantitative easing. I said that that would just be the beginning of the process to reverse the policies and go back to zero and go back to quantitative easing. But I said when they first acknowledge this when they admit this that the markets will rally and that will take some of the pressure off the fed because what put the pressure on the fed was the markets tanking was the market finally being in a bear market that 20 percent drop was it the bear market started and the fed was scared and so they did exactly what i said they were going to do and they reversed policy and of course the economic data was also deteriorating of course i think it's still deteriorating we're not getting the data now because of the shutdown although now that the shutdown is coming to an end so i get well, i guess we'll get a deluge of data that we didn't get in the past it'll all probably come out in some big data dump and then we'll get a lot more negative news on the economy but I knew and I said that this initial capitulation by the Fed to the markets would ignite a, a brief relief rally. And that's where we are now. But this rally is going to run its course. This is a bear market rally. This is not enough. The rate hikes of the past have already ensured a recession. The fact that the Fed is no longer expanding its balance sheet ensures the recession they needed to continue quantitative easing and without it everything is imploding it just didn't implode right away there is a lag uh, between this monetary policy and the unraveling of the bubble uh, that was inflated on top of this policy but now it is all coming you know unglued and what is going to happen is when the market goes back down and takes out the lows or even just gets in the vicinity of the lows. And as we get some more bad economic data, then the Fed is going to cut rates. Then the Fed is going to uh, launch quantitative easing. Or they're going to wait until we're actually in a recession to do that. But that is the next thing that is going to happen. And between now and then... I think the dollar is going to continue to lose value and gold is going to rise. In fact, as a result of today's announcement, we had a rather sharp decline in the dollar. Dollar index was down 80. Uh, we closed at 95.79, I think, back below 96. We still haven't taken out the lows for the year, but I think that's coming. In fact, they, that may be coming next week. Gold not able to get above 1300 but it got very close 
Gold was up about $16.50, 12.97-12.98-ish was the close on the day. Uh, silver up about 36 cents. So the metals were strong because of this announcement, I think, by the Fed that it is, you know, not going to be, you know, selling as many bonds into the market. It's not going to be shrinking its balance sheet as much as everybody believed, which means that all of that monetization of debt was exactly that. It was monetization. It was permanent. Ben Bernanke was not being honest when he initially told Congress that the bonds were being purchased temporarily. We now know, as if we needed any more information, that it was a permanent expansion of the balance sheet and a permanent monetization of U.S. government debt. But, you know, despite the fact that the Federal Reserve said they're not going to be selling as many treasuries, treasury prices fell. Why is that? You know, because there's not going to be as much supply coming on the market. Why wasn't that good for treasuries, right? The reason is because I think the bond markets are beginning to get a small whiff of the inflation that is going to be created as a result of the fact that the Fed is not going to be uh, withdrawing uh, from its uh, the circulation that money, and it's going to be holding on to uh, those U.S. government bonds. But again, this is just the first piece of this puzzle, because it's not just that they're not going to be doing QT, it's that they're going to be doing QE. Right? It's not just that uh, they're not going to keep raising interest rates. It's that interest rates are going to go back to zero. But before that happens, again, we do have a window of opportunity to increase our exposure uh, to gold and gold stocks and diminish our exposure to the U.S. dollar, the U.S. stock market, the U.S. bond market, get more money invested overseas, because I believe now you're going to start to see the investment thesis that I've had all of these years really start to play out. I mean, it's going to go slowly at first, right? We're going to slowly see the foreign stocks outperforming the U.S. stocks as uh, the dollar declines. Gold stocks will again begin to outperform uh, non-mining stocks as, as the dollar weakens and more people begin to perceive the inflationary threat that's looming in the horizon. And But then, you know, once we actually go back into recession, I mean, once we're back at zero, once we're doing uh, another round of quantitative easing, I mean, it won't technically be too late to make these investments. It's just that the opportunity will not be nearly as great because the dollar will be much lower uh, and all of the, the, the foreign stocks that you would want to buy to protect yourself will be much more expensive priced in dollars. So, you know, before there's a stampede to get out of the dollar, well, now it's just a trickle as people are beginning to figure out what should have been obvious years ago but wasn't. They're going to start to vote with their feet, and as they're voting with their feet, they're going to be leaving the dollar and all U.S. assets looking for true safe havens outside the U.S. And this whole idea that the U.S. is the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper is finally going to be exposed uh, for what it is. You know, along those lines, too, about how people just don't really understand the, the, the problems of debt and deficits. I read this article in a publication called The Week, written by a guy named Jeff Spross. And the title of the article was How Deficits Can Save Global Growth. So just, I mean, just reading the title, you know this, this article is going to be complete garbage. But this guy's whole thesis is the reason that global growth is slowing is because some countries aren't doing their part. Right. There are some countries that are just not running trade deficits and they're producing more than they consume. And therefore, this is uh, bad for the economy. And what he is hoping is that the countries, you know, like Germany, right, for example, he gives that are running surpluses that they should just pitch in and, do, and, and run deficits, too. And if they can just start borrowing money and, 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 and buying stuff that. The, the global economy can have more growth, which is, is such an acidine uh, conclusion to draw. I mean, basically, this guy thinks that the problems in the economy are that some countries 
are investing too much and saving too much. They're just too fiscally responsible. They're too prudent. They're living within their means. That's the problem. He says we need more countries like America that are profligate and just spend, spend, spend and keep going into debt and live beyond their means. Well, how is that even possible? I mean, does this guy not even realize that it's impossible for every nation to run a deficit? Somebody's got to run a surplus, right? That's the definition. If somebody is importing more than they export, somebody else has to export more than they import. I mean, somebody has to make the stuff that everybody is buying. The same thing with borrowing. Everybody can't be a borrower. Somebody has to be a lender. If everybody borrows, from whom do they borrow? Who does the lending? Now, I guess they're saying, well, the central banks will just do massive printing. Well, that's just worldwide inflation and a collapse of the whole fiat monetary system. But it shows you this is the type of thinking. Again, this guy, you know, probably got a degree uh, in, from an American college. Maybe he studied economics and he comes out a complete idiot. Right. Just like uh, Akasha Cortez can can major in economics and come out a communist. I mean, obviously, she learned nothing. This guy didn't learn anything either to think that economies grow because of debt and borrowing. You know, the reason that you're seeing some slowdown right now in global growth is that countries have borrowed too much. Right. They, they have so much debt they can't keep borrowing. I mean, the problem is we're trying to pay for the consumption of the past because we borrowed to finance it. So that means we don't have as much money to consume now because we have to pay back the money we borrowed to consume in the past. And we're going to consume even less in the future because the interest rates are rising and the bills are piling up. But, you know, that is the type of nonsense that we have to contend with here. That is the type of economic thinking there is, which really annoys me as, as far as you know the politics of it. But as an investor, this is what's going to make us rich. It's the fact that so many people have absolutely zero understanding of, of, of economics and how it works, that they were so fooled by the Fed's magic trick, that they actually believed that a problem that the Fed made worse was solved. And that caused the herd to invest based on a, a false uh, understanding, a false narrative of what was going to happen. And so everybody is positioned the wrong way. The, whole, the crowd is invested completely wrong. But you have a small number of people that were able to see through the Fed's magic trick to reality who have invested properly. And we are positioned to benefit when the crowd that was fooled finds out what the illusion was and what it was covering up. And when they find out that we're in a much deeper hole now than we were back then, then they are going to scramble to try to protect themselves. Just like, you know, in 2011, when the price of gold went up to 1900 and the dollar was falling because people were scrambling to protect themselves. Well, the scramble is going to be even bigger this time because the mess is even bigger and people are even less prepared now than they were then. So, so the next time it's, you know, the moves are going to be far greater and they're going to happen much quicker, which is why I'm trying to encourage people to act sooner rather than later. Because at some point the dollar is going to be falling in such big you know chunks and gold will be rising so quickly. People will be afraid to buy. People are going to be afraid that there's going to be a pullback. Now, maybe at some point the fear will be over overcome with greed as you know, gold's up every single day, day after day after day, and the dollar is tanking, uh, then we might see a movement. But I mean, before any of that happens, while you still have such an obvious good buying opportunity for gold or gold stocks and a great selling opportunity for the dollar, given the current exchange rate, even though the dollar is off the highs, it is still extremely close to the highs. So you're, it's a great opportunity to be selling dollars at the current level. I wanted to say a little bit more, too, about the uh, the ongoing uh, saga of um, the smiling uh, MAGA hat wearing high school boys, you know, that, you know, smiled, right? had the nerve to smile or, as the left says, smirk uh, at a Native American who uh, was banging a drum in their face. But, you know, after all of the the footage came out, right, the two hours of footage came out and, and everybody should have known by then that the whole story was a lie. Right. This guy, Nathan Phillips, the 
um, Native American elder has been going on television and getting interviewed. Like NBC had a big interview with this guy uh, after all the truth has come out, right? So we know that the guy lied 100%, right? And when he was first interviewed, right, he had no idea, I'm sure, that the whole two hours was on film. He probably just knew about the short clip that had gone viral, and he took advantage of the fact that people didn't really know what happened, that they simply saw this one little clip, and he decided to, you know, to lie. That's what he did. So he told several lies, bold-faced lies that have been proven to be lies based on the fact that we now have the, uh, the, the, the film of what actually happened. So then he goes on NBC, and does the interviewer question him at all about his lies? No. The guy goes on television and repeats the same lies, the same lies. The, the, the kids surrounded me. I couldn't escape. Uh, I was afraid. Um, the kids were, were, were a threat. They were threatening uh, uh, the African-Americans who were there. They were, they, were, they were going to attack the African-Americans. I had to protect the African-American victims from these racist thugs. So I, I got between them and they surrounded me and, and, and they were so racist. And you know, he just repeats the same lies that he told before the truth came out. And the reporters just sit there and let him lie. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, the, the problem is everybody is afraid of calling this guy out or even asking him the question about, hey, wait a minute. I mean, this is what we saw. Can you explain what we saw versus what you're saying? I mean, all he gets is softball questions. I guess if you are a member of uh, the protected group, if you are an official victim, right? So if you are a Native American, you can tell all the lies you want and it doesn't matter. You're forgiven, right? You don't have to tell the truth. You can lie, 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 and the media just, okay, just lets you get away with it because they're afraid to call you out on it so you can say whatever you want. But if you're a white male, you can't even smile. The minute you smile, you're Adolf Hitler. And if you don't believe that, I was you know, reading this article. I didn't even see some of these tweets that came out. But there, the, the NBC also interviewed Nick Sandman, who was the the, the main face of this whole controversy, the kid who, who was standing there with the, uh, the MAGA hat on, who was smiling. Um, and so NBC also interviewed him. And oh, by the way, too, Nathan Phillips on his interview said that he forgave Nick Sandman. He forgave him. Forgave him for what? You don't have to forgive somebody who did nothing wrong. He should be apologizing to Nick Sandman for lying. He should be apologizing to the country, to NBC, to the reporters. He has a lot of people to apologize for, but he figures, hey, why should he? Right? He just, you know, he's a Native American, so he could do anything he wants. He could say anything he wants. But Nick Sandman, he can't even smile. But again, so in the Nick Sandman, because he was being interviewed, a lot of people on the left were outraged by the fact that the media would even interview this guy. So uh, this article that I was reading in the Daily Wire pointed out some of the criticism that he was getting on social media, on Twitter, when NBC announced that they were going to uh, interview him. So one guy tweeted, oh, you know, wanted to know if he was also, if they were also going to go to prison and interview Dylan Roof. Right to do a segment now. Dylan Roof, if you don't remember, he is the white supremacist who murdered nine black people in a church in cold blood in 2015. So this guy is a white supremacist, and he murdered, murdered in cold blood nine people. And this guy is equating Nick Sandman with that guy, like he's some kind of white supremacist. Well, how is he a white supremacist? Because he had the nerve to smile when somebody was banging a drum in his face? That, that makes you a white supremacist? But it didn't stop there. There was another tweet that went a little further. This guy says, tweets, will you be digging up Hitler's corpse for a fun dialogue? All right, so now NBC is going to interview somebody who smiled and wore a MAGA hat. 
And this guy is saying that's the equivalent. This smiling 16-year-old high school student is the equivalent of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, right? A man responsible for the slaughter of millions of innocent people in concentration camps, responsible for World War II. That guy is the equivalent of this high school kid because he smiled wearing a MAGA hat, right? This, you know, this as a Jew, first of all, I am offended when anybody would diminish just how bad Adolf Hitler was by comparing him to this kid. But this is where the left is, right? They can lie with impunity. They can say whatever they want, and somehow they're on the moral high ground. But you so much as smile, Right? If you're if you're if you're white or if you're a conservative or if you support Trump and, and, and you're Adolf Hitler. I mean, so I mean, this thing is just boils my blood the longer it goes on. And again, all I can hope is that somehow it backfires on the left because it is so extreme. It, it shines such a spotlight on the absurdity of everything that they've been doing and everything that, that they've been saying, that it's, it's, it's got to backfire. Because if this doesn't, well, then there's nothing that these guys can't get away with. But I want to finish up this uh, podcast by talking a lot about a proposal by presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren for a wealth tax in the United States. And according to Elizabeth Warren, the tax would be 2% on wealth above $50 million. And it's an annual tax. So let's say you have $100 million of wealth. Well, you would pay 2% of $50 million. And assuming your wealth stayed the same, you would pay the 2% again every single year, right? Your ta- your wealth would be taxed over and over and over again. The same wealth, right? Because at least in an income tax, they're taxing different income, right? The income that you earned in a different year. But the wealth tax, they want to ta- tax the exact same wealth over and over again. And then the tax rate goes up to 3% if you have more than a billion dollars. So if you have $10 billion of wealth, then you would pay 3% of $9 billion each and every year, right? Of course, if your wealth went up, you would pay 3% of a bigger number. And if it went down, you'd pay 3% of a smaller number. Now, this is a terrible idea, right? Um, number one, it's unconstitutional. Number two, it's immoral. And number three, it's horrible for the economy. But I w- I'm going to talk about all three of these. But the first one is the constitutionality, because this is simple. This is straightforward. And I've only seen a couple of articles that have brought this point up correctly, um, that it would be unconstitutional. But I read one article in the LA Times, a completely idiotic, biased article by the LA Times. Basically, the title of the article should give away just how biased they are. The title says, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax proposal is constitutional, experts say, and necessary. First of all, it ain't necessary. In fact, it's a lot more than not necessary. It is extremely dangerous and destructive, but it is completely unconstitutional. There is no way you can try to contort the Constitution in such a way as to justify the wealth tax. And I know I've spoken about this before, but I'm going to speak about it once again. Not everybody you know, listens to all my podcasts, but the Constitution is very clear. It creates two types of taxes, direct taxes and indirect taxes. And indirect taxes are taxes that you pay indirectly to the government, hence the name. What's an indirect tax? A sales tax, right? When you pay a sales tax, you don't send a check to the government. You buy a product, the sales tax is added to the cost of the product. The tariffs that Donald Trump is imposing are an example of uh, an indirect tax, right? A tariff that you don't send the check to the government for your tariff, the, you know, the tariff gets added onto the price of the product. So you pay the tax indirectly when you buy the product. That is an indirect tax. What is a direct tax? A direct tax is where you write a check and send it into the government, right? They're taxing you directly not indirectly through the things you buy. They're just laying the tax directly. Now, each class of tax has its own criteria that is imposed. So the Constitution says that all indirect taxes must be uniform, 
What does that mean? That means they have to be the same. That means if they're going to put a, a tax, let's say a 10% tax on cigarettes, that the tax has to be the same all over the country. They can't have the tax be 10% in one state, but only 5% in another state. They have to be uniform, right? And that's the only requirement, right? The federal government can levy any indirect tax it wants so long as it does it uniformly, right? Now, for direct taxes, it's a different criteria. Direct taxes have to be apportioned. And in fact, the founding fathers thought it was so important that they actually mentioned it twice. The only thing the Constitution says twice is that direct taxes have to be apportioned. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means before the government could levy a direct tax, first it has to calculate how much money it wants to raise that year. Right? So let's say the government wants to raise $100 billion in a direct tax. And it wants the direct tax to be on wealth, right? Okay, we want to raise $100 billion. Well, what they have to do is they have to add up the population of each state. And then each state is responsible for its proportion of that tax. So let's say you have a state that is 2% of the population. Well, they would have to pay 2% of that $100 billion or $2 billion. That's their share, right? Um, and so here is the problem with that. One, it's very difficult because you got to know exactly how much you want to raise, and then you got to have the census, and then you got to send each state a bill. But then it's up to the state to figure out the rates on how to raise the money. Because let's say you have two states that each have 2% of the population, but one state is twice as wealthy as the other state. There's a lot of rich people living in that state, and the other state has a lot more poor people. Well, if they both have the same population, they both are responsible for raising the same amount of money. And that would mean that the wealth tax in the wealthy state would be a lower percentage than the wealth tax in the poorer state. So that would mean that it wouldn't just be one rate, right, that everybody would have, like, like Elizabeth Warren would say, oh, it's just going to be 2%. It wouldn't. In some states, it might be 2%. In some states, it might be 5%. In some, in some states, it might start on wealth above 50 million, but other states, states may have to have a lower bar. They may have to tax wealth above 5 million in order to get uh, the, the required amount of money. Because obviously, all the wealthy people are concentrated in a handful of states. I mean, the people that would pay this tax, which is exactly why the framers made it so hard for the, the, the government to enact a direct tax and why they wanted it to be apportioned is because they didn't want poorer states to vote for taxes that would be paid by the wealthier states and not them. That was the whole idea, to prevent the poor states from draining resources from the wealthier states. That's one of the reasons that the income tax, which really is a direct tax, has been so bad is because it has allowed that to happen. But of course, the other reason that the founding fathers uh, liked uh, indirect taxes was because they said they were self-correcting as to abuse, meaning that if you raise the tax too high, you don't collect any revenue because people just don't buy the products that are subject to the tax. But a direct tax is, is harder to avoid because it falls directly on the citizen and, and therefore it's more oppressive. And so the whole idea was that the government was going to run on indirect taxes. That's where the money was going to come from for normal operating procedures. But, you know, if something happened like a war, an emergency, and the government needed to raise a lot of money, that's when they would turn to a direct tax. So it wouldn't be an ongoing source of funding for the government. It would be something they did in an emergency if they needed money quickly, uh, and then that's when they would fall uh, to direct taxes. But, of course, when the income tax came in, right, it was declared unconstitutional because the income tax is a direct tax, right? You, you send the money directly to the government. Now, of course, the government tried to claim that, no, that it wasn't a direct tax. They tried to claim that well, the framers only meant a capitation, which is a poll tax, which is just a tax per head, right? There's no criteria. Like, everybody's going to pay $10. Everybody's going to pay $50, right? And so they tried to argue that that's what a direct tax was. But the Supreme Court said, no, that's crazy. That's not what it means. I mean, obviously, if a direct tax just meant a capitation, then that's what the Constitution would read. It would say all capitation shall be apportioned. The fact that they used a broader term, direct taxes, means that there's more than one tax 
that falls into this category. So the Supreme Court in the Pollock decision completely rebuffed that idea and had all kinds of examples that proved that the founders did not mean direct taxes to be limited just to capitations, that it included property taxes and, of course, an income tax, which is what prompted the passage of the 16th Amendment, which reads that Congress can lay and collect taxes on income uh, from whatever source derived without apportionment. Now, without getting into the meaning of the 16th Amendment, because I don't really want to have that discussion now, just suffice it to say that the 16th Amendment says you can tax income uh, from whatever source derived without regard to apportionment. Just income, not wealth. It doesn't say you can tax stocks, your private companies, bonds, uh, real estate. Those would be sources of income. If you own a piece of property and it pays a rent, okay, well, you can tax the rent, which was derived from the real estate, but the 16th Amendment doesn't say you can tax the real estate. You can't tax the source of income, just the income that is derived from the source. That's clear. And in fact, when the Supreme Court ruled on the constitutionality of the income tax again in the Bershaber decision, the Bershaber court specifically looked back at Pollock and said that it was not repudiating or overturning anything from Pollock, that everything that was said in Pollock, that decision stands, and it has never been challenged. So that is the ultimate decision. And there have been other Supreme Court cases that have not been as involved as Pollock that have ratified this idea of of what a direct tax is and what an indirect tax is. So you have all kinds of Supreme Court precedent beginning with Pollock, but then having cases like Eisen versus McCombers, a number of cases that I don't even need to get into. But suffice it to say, the body of law is very clear on now what a direct tax is and what what an indirect tax is. But of course, this this article in the LA Times says, it reads that uh, the experts claim that it's constitutional. What experts? They dug up two idiots that they claimed are experts that have some legal background and obvi- and they're trying to say that direct taxes are, are only capitations, which is exactly what Pollock said was not the case. And they laid it out. They proved it. These guys referenced Pollock as if Pollock was now outdated or had been overturned by Bershaber or some other case, which it didn't happen. But what they did reference... Um, in this article, these experts, they did reference the estate and the gift tax. And they said, well, the estate and the gift taxes were upheld. um, And and so therefore, a wealth tax would be upheld too. And that's a bunch of nonsense. First of all, I do not believe that the Supreme Court decision with respect to uh, the estate and gift taxes was sound. I think that the estate and gift tax are unconstitutional. But, you know, they have been upheld as constitutional, but you have to understand why, and you have to understand how the the, the, the court was able to kind of contort the Constitution to allow this. The gift tax and the estate tax are not taxes on gifts or estates. That's not how they're worded, right? So you are not being, the gift that you give, when you give a gift, it's not a tax on the gift. The way the the, the statute is worded, it is a tax on the privilege of making a gift. The estate tax is a tax on the privilege of uh, leaving an estate to your heirs. Because the Supreme Court has ruled that the government can tax a privilege as an excise tax. So that's what they're doing. They're saying that it is a privilege to give away your money. And the government is going to lay an excise tax on that privilege, and we're going to base the amount of the tax on the size of the gift. Now, the Supreme Court said that's okay. No, I think that's totally wrong. I do not think it is a privilege to give away your your property. I don't think it's a privilege to will your property to your heirs. I think it's a right. Right. If you own property, then you have a right to do with it what you want. And the government can't turn a right into a privilege simply so they can tax it. Right. So I think the whole decision was bad, bad precedent. But now you have these guys trying to say, well, the if if a gift tax and an estate tax is an excise tax, well, then so is a a, a wealth tax. 
I don't see how they can come to that conclusion because they've ruled that giving away your wealth is a privilege. Well, now they can't rule that not giving away your wealth is a privilege because that's what they're doing. They're taxing you on the wealth that you haven't given away. They're taxing you on wealth that you haven't willed to your heirs. The government can't say it's a privilege to give my wealth away. It's a privilege to will my wealth. And it's a privilege to hold on to my wealth. Well, then, well, I mean, then I have no rights whatsoever. I mean, property is not a privilege. I don't have property privileges. I have property rights. And it is not a right to keep the property that I own. If I own property, you can't say I own it based on some kind of privilege. What privilege are you exercising when you own your own property that you acquired legally? Right? I worked, I earned money, I paid taxes, I bought property, I have a right to that property. The government can't claim, no, you have a privilege and we're going to levy a tax on you based on that privilege. There's no way they're going to be able to word a wealth tax in such a way that they're going to claim that keeping the wealth that you already have is somehow a privilege granted to you by the government and that they're going to levy an excise tax on that privilege. No way. So I don't think that this... Uh, a wealth tax would ever make it. I mean, the Supreme Court that we have now, and thankfully we got Trump uh, making some appointments and maybe he'll make another one. There's no way that they're going to allow that. I mean, sometimes uh, the, the, the court will allow things uh, that are unconstitutional that have been there for a long time. But this would be a whole new precedent, a brand new tax. And if it's challenged quickly enough, I think that there's a much better chance that this will get struck down than Obamacare. Sure, Obamacare was unconstitutional too, but it wasn't quite as crystal clear as this. I mean, this, there is no way. I know you got these left-wing guys that want to pretend that the, the only thing that a direct tax is is a capitation, but that's exactly what they tried to pretend back in the 1890s, and the Supreme Court in Pollock wouldn't, wasn't buying any of it. They said that's a bunch of nonsense, and it was nonsense then, and it's nonsense now. Of course, apart from being unconstitutional, I mean, even if we didn't have a constitution that prevented this stuff, it's still immoral to steal. I mean, I hear all the arguments for the wealth tax, right? The wealth tax is about taking money from some people that have too much and giving it to other people that you think are more deserving that don't have enough. I mean, this is an outright theft. It's a government transfer where we're robbing one group of people and handing the money to another group of people in exchange for their votes. Because after all, that's why the wealth tax is so popular, because nobody voting for it is going to have to pay it. So it is outright theft, and it is not moral. As I said on the last podcast, when you have uh, Ocasio or, or Cortez saying it's immoral for somebody to be a billionaire, what's immoral is to steal money from somebody because they're a billionaire. That's what's immoral, and this entire wealth tax is immoral. Look, the wealthy are already paying the income tax. Wealth that is generating income is being taxed. You're taxing the income. Now you want to tax wealth that doesn't generate income? I mean, imagine the lunacy of this type of tax. I mean, what if somebody owns a bunch of art, right? You have some of these grandmasters that are worth $50, $100 million of painting, and they're hanging in your house, and you got to pay a tax of 2 or 3% of the value of that piece of art every single year? I mean, it's a what? I mean, eventually, you, you know, there'll be nothing left. I mean, you can't even afford to own the art if you have to pay that. But I mean, what about people that own undeveloped land? I mean, especially people that aren't developing land. Maybe it's, you know, they're keeping it pristine, you know, conservation, but they own it. I mean, they're not getting any income off it. They have to pay uh, taxes. And then, of course, you have a lot of people that own uh, businesses where, you know, there, there's, there's no liquidity there. You can't just sell a private company, but now you have to, uh, you got to get an appraiser to say what it's worth. Well, it could be worth a lot of money, but there's not a, nearly as much liquidity. I mean, where is the money going to come from to pay the tax if you have a, a wealth tax? And of course, the, the huge problem economically for a wealth tax is wealth is where economic growth comes from. So if you're taxing wealth, you're taxing economic growth. You're, you're undermining the ability of wealthy people to use their wealth to grow the economy, to fund new businesses, to buy capital equipment. In fact, that capital equipment that a business owns becomes part of the wealth that is being taxed. 
we're actually going to be taxed on the value of our uh, plant and equipment, right? Because that would be included in the book value of a business. And that's part of the wealth of the business that the owner is being taxed for having. So this is terrible economics. Uh, and and, and the, the problem, though, too, with the wealth tax relative to the income tax and why it is potentially so much more oppressive is, you know, if the government is subjecting you to an income tax, right, at least, you know, you have a way to minimize your income, to minimize your tax. I mean, you know, you could buy stocks that don't pay dividends as opposed to dividend paying stocks, and then you're not being hit with the tax. I mean, you're just owning an asset that's not paying income. Or if you have income producing property, you can move uh, into raw land or something that doesn't throw off income. I mean, you can put a lot of your wealth into assets that don't throw off income in a way to uh, you know, avoid the income tax, which again is harmful to the economy, but at least it allows the individual a way to, to somewhat avoid the taxation. But once you tax wealth, there's no way to avoid that tax unless you squander your wealth. Because if you move it from income-producing property to non-income-producing property or dividend-paying stocks to non-dividend-paying stocks, it's still wealth and it's still going to get taxed. So uh, it's, it's a much more oppressive taxation. And in fact, not only does Elizabeth Warren want to have these taxes, she wants to further harass all the people who were subject to the tax. She wants to make sure that every person subject to this tax is audited every single year without fail. Now, I think most likely people that have tremendous incomes, they're probably audited every year anyway. In fact, it's probably an endless audit. But in case there are some wealthy people, really wealthy people who aren't audited every year, you're going to be audited every year. So if you have a, a net worth of 55 or 60 million, right, now you're subject to the tax. Elizabeth Warren wants it to be required that the IRS audit you every single year. So in other words, the government is going to turn up to heat and make life much more miserable for any high net worth people, right? It's so, and, you know, it's like you're trying to run a business, you're trying to provide goods and services and employ people, and you're going to have the IRS up your ass constantly auditing you and harassing you and just making life miserable to the point where, all right, forget it. I'm just going to retire. I don't, I don't need this hassle, right? I, you know, uh, and, but then the other thing, because obviously Elizabeth Warren realizes that some people might just say, hey, I'm out of here, right? I'm just, I'm not taking this. I'm just leaving the country. So she wants to increase the exit tax that already exists. There already is an exit tax. And the way the exit tax works is if you leave the country, you have to mark to market all of your appreciated assets. And you have to pay the, the capital gains tax on the appreciation, even if you didn't sell. So let's say you leave the United States, and you have $100 million in a business, but let's say you only your cost basis in that business is $10 million, and now it's worth $100 million. They're going to say, okay, you have a $90 million capital gain, so you need to pay us uh, you know, 24%. And you, you get a number of years. You don't have to pay it all at once. You have a certain number of years to make the payments to the IRS to pay that exit tax. That's already there. But that's not enough for Elizabeth Warren. What Elizabeth Warren wants to do is, in addition to that, her new exit tax is that any wealth that you have above $50 million, you have to give 40% of that to the IRS in order to renounce your citizenship, which and it doesn't matter what the cost basis is. So if you have, you know, a business, you know, that's worth um, 200 million, but you know you paid 300 million for it, you bought it, at, you know, whatever. Even if it's worth less, even if you have no capital gains that are unrealized, the government wants 40 percent of your principal above 50 million dollars as the price of freedom. If you want to get out from under annual audits, if you don't want to have to pay the wealth tax, if you want to leave, then we're going to make you pay through the nose in order to get out of here. And of course, you know, if this wealth tax were to actually be enacted and somehow, uh, you know, have the court just overlook the unconstitutionality and just rubber stamp it anyway somehow, um, the rate would not stay at 2 and 3% for long. Right. I mean, how long did the income stack stay at uh, at three percent? That's where it started. 
right? It was a tiny tax or maybe 6%. I mean, it was nothing on incomes above. It only, it only was for the millionaires, right? When the income tax first came in, right, that was the camel's nose under the tent. It was a tiny tax, 3 4 5% on the Rockefellers, on the Vanderbilts, on the Carnegies. The government lied to America to get them to support amending the Constitution to enable an income tax so they can tax the rich. And the whole idea was, hey, we're going to lower taxes on everybody else. We're going to get rid of all these tariffs that we have now that the middle class is paying. And instead of tariffs, we're going to have an income tax that the super rich are going to pay. Right. And then they had to amend the Constitution. And when the Supreme Court initially declared it unconstitutional, you know, that the, they, they lampooned the Supreme Court. They vilified them. You're defenders of the rich. Right. It was a it was a tax on the rich to relieve the middle class of the burden of taxation by allowing for the elimination or the lowering of tariffs because the government was going to have the tax revenue coming in from the rich. And then no sooner did they pass the income tax as a soak the rich tax of a minor tax. In fact, I think they were thinking about putting a cap in initially. There was some talk about capping the income tax at 10%. I wish they did that. But I think what they said is they didn't want to cap it at 10% because they were afraid somebody might actually raise it that high. Well, then they should have capped it lower. But, you know, nobody thought it would be 10%. And before long, it got up to 91%. And it's not just for the, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, but starting with World War II and the withholding tax, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, everybody paid the tax at rates far in excess of what anybody believed possible initially for the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. So now you have the government saying, hey, let's allow a wealth tax. And it's just going to be on the very rich, just on the super rich, just on the billionaires, right? The really, really rich people. And it's only going to be small. It's just going to be a couple of percent. Yeah, right. That's what they said about the income tax. So if this thing comes in, it's not going to be long before that 2% becomes 5%, 10%, and before that threshold of $50 million goes down to $25 million, goes down to $10 million, and at the same time, the threshold for the tax is going down, the value of money is also going to be going down. So prices are going to be going up. So inflation is going to be artificially lifting the value of everybody's assets, pushing more and more people into the wealth tax that otherwise would not have been there. But what they're taxing is not real wealth, but phantom wealth. And what this tax really is, is a recipe for outright confiscation, nationalization. This is what the government is doing. When they're taxing your wealth, they are confiscating your wealth. They are nationalizing your wealth, except they're not doing it all at once. They're doing it slowly. But the next thing you know, you're living in Venezuela. And that's exactly where we're going because this is democratic socialism. This is how it works. You democratically vote in socialism and then it creeps higher and higher and higher until there's massive poverty, you've destroyed all the wealth, and then you have violent revolution. This is the slippery slope that I talked about in the last podcast, and hopefully the, the slip on the slope that we don't take is an unconstitutional wealth tax, which obviously is not going to pass while Donald Trump is president and while the Republicans are in the Senate, it has no chance. It will be a selling point for the 2020 election. In fact, this is going to be crazy to watch the Democrats outpromise one another in these primaries, right? Because it's all going to be about who can promise to steal the most from the richest people and give the most to everybody else, right? Everybody's going to have to outpromise and outsteal the other person in order to get the nomination. And under a normal circumstances, right? I don't think that this socialist that the Democrats are going to nominate would be able to win under normal circumstances, right? Even if Donald Trump, you know, uh, was on the ticket, right? Under normal circumstances, as much as some people don't like Trump, hopefully there's still enough Americans that don't like socialism even more, right? And so that the Democrats would not be able to win. But if the economy does what I think it's going to do, right, and all the blame is laid on the Republicans and on Trump. In this type of economy that I envision, under these circumstances, this would be the one time that the Americans would be dumb enough to vote in socialism. 
And as I said, if we vote it in, we may never lose it. We may have one election cycle to take it back. One. And that might be it. And then we're done. We're done as a nation. Uh, and, and who knows when? Uh, will be able to get out of this. Who knows when the people will be able to rise up and revolt against uh, the socialists once they usurp even more power. Right? That's what happens because once they're in there, right, and you know whatever is left of the Constitution is eradicated and they control the military, right? And so what do you do, right? And then they start building these walls around the country, not just walls, you know, literally, but walls like Elizabeth Warren is talking about. Because that exit tax, if that exit tax comes in, right, 40% of your wealth above 50 million, believe me, it's going to go 25 million, 10 million, 5 million. I mean, at some point, they're going to make it impossible for anybody to leave this country, right? That's what they're going to do. I mean, obviously, in East Germany, they had a wall. And if you tried to leave the country, they shot you. Well, they may not shoot you, at least not yet, but what they're going to do is say, if you want to leave the country, you leave broke. If you want to take your wealth out of America, you ain't doing it. You can leave, but you got to let your wealth stay because your wealth belongs to the people. Anything you have, you have based on a privilege, right? Because if they can get the, uh, the wealth tax in based on the idea that it's a privilege for you to keep your money, that the only reason you have money is because the government lets you, that you're, that you're the beneficiary of some kind of privilege, that you're not actually born with inalienable rights, that the only privileges that you have are at the grace of government, and whatever privileges we give you, we can take away. So if they're going to say, hey, if you're going to leave this country, then you surrender everything you have. But again, once you've taken that perspective, then they can take everything you have even though you're here. That is the direction that this country is headed. That is where the political winds are blowing. And, you know, if we're not careful here, it's not just going to blow. It's going to be a complete storm. And storms are destructive. Believe me, right? I'm in Puerto Rico. I know how destructive a storm could be. But Mother Nature's got nothing on the destruction that can be wrought by socialism.